Page 1611, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. Returning to our study in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 10, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word stands forever. Amen. The king is coming. This is the kind of announcement that gets everyone's attention. In our country, the titles and the offices are a little bit different. But if you're in Washington, D.C., and you hear someone yell, the president is coming, no matter what everyone feels about the current president at that time, you will see people rush to see if they can get a glimpse. Everyone sort of changes what they are doing. The president, the king, is coming. The, the same kind of thing happens in normal life sometimes. Children assembled at school their teacher runs to the office and someone waits by the door and says, the teacher is coming. And when that happens, everyone snaps back up. Make sure that you're doing uh, what you're supposed to be doing. And perhaps even the same thing happens in offices. The boss is coming. It changes the way that we act. The way for a king must be prepared. The way for a king must be prepared. As Christians, we believe that our king has come. And that our king is coming again. And our faith in that central teaching of the faith shapes the way that we think about the salvation that we have and the ongoing mission of the church and how our lives figure into that mission. How is the gospel to go forth into the world? How are we to make this announcement that the king has come and that the king is coming? What does that mean about the way that we live? 
What does that mean about the way that we live in contrast to those around us? This passage has a lot to say to all of those things. This passage in Luke shows us about power in weakness, which tells us about the nature of salvation in Jesus Christ, doesn't it? It tells us about the ongoing mission of the church and how the lives of all Christians figure into that mission. Of course, some of the things that Luke says here are not binding on on missionaries today. There are many things that Jesus says. We'll take a close look at all of those. But Luke wrote his gospel to the early church, and he was himself a mission-minded man, wasn't he? Luke wrote the book of Acts and was very concerned with the spreading of the gospel, the good news. And he wrote to mission-minded people. And so how would Luke's audience have received all of these things, this glimpse of the mission at this particular time? This was the mission of the kingdom of God right after Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. So we'll think about all of those things as we walk through this text, how it shows us about the nature of our salvation, how it teaches us about the ongoing mission of the church, and how all of our lives figure into that mission. This passage begins... The simple phrase saying, after this, and usually Luke is is doing that to connect two passages together. He wants us to keep everything in mind of what he has just said. And we, of course, just spent about a month thinking about the pillars of the Reformation, celebrating all of those things worth celebrating, our salvation in faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. But uh, perhaps we need a little bit of a reminder of what happened in chapter 9 of the Gospel of Luke. It's a very important chapter Many things happened, many things that we need to keep in mind because they provided a shift in the narrative. Things changed a little bit uh, with what Jesus and his disciples are doing. Remember, as I just mentioned, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. In other words, the mission of what he had come to do ultimately, to go and to die, that now is at the center of his attention. He set his face. He is determined to go to Jerusalem. So the rest of Luke will be his journey into that place. We know that he is going there because chapter 9 of Luke told us that he was to have his own exodus. There's to be an exodus that Jesus was to bring about. He is a new and a better Moses. He doesn't free God's people from slavery in Egypt. He frees God's people from their bondage to sin. Jesus talked to his disciples about how they are not to deal with rejection. Remember when the Samaritan town rejects Jesus... James and John said, perhaps we should call down lightning from heaven. And Jesus explains to them why the people of God and the ministry of the gospel are not to bear the sword. He tells them how not to deal with rejection. Today he will say a little bit more on how they are to deal with rejection. The transfiguration happened, which was a focusing of who Jesus is, revealing of who he is to his closest followers, and it sharpens our understanding of his mission. And then finally, he begins to talk about his death more and more. His death becomes more and more certain and more and more a part of what is going on in the Gospel of Luke. With all of those things in mind, in this passage, Jesus publicly commissions 72, 72, a larger group of of disciples, larger than what he sent out in chapter 9. Chapter 9, of course, he just sends out the 12, but here he publicly commissions more than that. Our translation says 72. Perhaps you notice there is, there's a note there in our scripture. There's a little note that says some manuscripts say 70. 
So there, there is a little bit of uncertainty whether Jesus sends out 70 or 72 here. By the way, when you hear people say things like, the Bible is a, is a book that's full of contradictions and errors, this is the kind of thing that they'll be talking about, which shows how irresponsible and how misleading it is to say something like that. Whether Jesus sends out 70 or 72 doesn't change anything about the essence of what is going on here. And there would have been good biblical and theological reasons for both numbers 70 and 72 to make sense. If Jesus sends out 70, we probably would connect it to the 70 elders of Israel who helped Moses lead the people of God. And the 70 elders of Israel in Exodus 24 and Numbers 11, they received a special blessing of the Spirit of God in order to lead God's people. So we would then conclude that these 70 that Jesus sends out, he sends them out on a spirit-empowered mission. It's a good thing to keep in mind, and certainly the mission of the church, the proclamation of the gospel, is a spirit-empowered mission. If Jesus sends out 72, uh, the connections to particular Old Testament passages perhaps are less clear, but 72 is a multiple of 12, so Luke may be saying this is just a larger group. Jesus wanted something that was five times bigger than the, the original group he had sent out. So whether it's 70 or 72, really nothing changes about the essence of the text, and it shows why it's so irresponsible for people to say that the Bible is full of contradictions or errors or things like that. Nothing changes. And he sends these, these disciples of his out two by two, two by two. And Luke shows us throughout his other writings that this is the way missionaries usually are sent out, especially in the book of Acts. Peter and John, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Mark, Paul and Silas. This was the way that the early church went out after the resurrection of Christ to proclaim the good news. They went out two by two, and Jesus sends them before his face. That's a literal, uh, a close following of what, what happens here uh, in the Greek text. Jesus sends them before his face, and that reminds us of chapter 7, where John the Baptist was sent out before the face of Jesus. Why? To prepare the way to prepare the way for the Lord, to proclaim the coming king. And so this is very much what these disciples are doing. They are going out before the face of Jesus to proclaim that he is coming. He is the coming king. Preparing of the way, a a paving of the road, is inherent to the ministry of the kingdom of God. The way for Jesus is to be prepared. Though much of what Jesus says here in this passage is only going to be specific to these disciples at this time, nevertheless, through all of these things, we get a glimpse of the mission of the church, a glimpse of the mission of the church. And Jesus shows us that by saying that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a farmer, but I would imagine that harvest time is extremely stressful, Right? Here you have a crop that is ready, a crop that is hopefully good, it's ready to be gathered and everything, and it probably seems like there are not enough hours in the day or workers at your disposal to get all of the work done that needs to be done. The crop is there, the crop is ready, but there, are not, there is not enough time and not enough workers. And the same is true of gospel ministry. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who would believe. There is a world of people 
So many of whom do not know uh, Jesus Christ as the only way to God. The fields are white with harvest. The gospel is powerful. The gospel opens eyes. The gospel transforms hearts and minds and lives. But of course, it always seems that there are too few workers to be sent out to proclaim this good news. This is part of the mission, uh, the mission of the church throughout the history since Christ has ascended, trying to find those who will go out into the world and proclaim the good news and to see lives changed by God's power and by uh, his grace. This is what is true of gospel ministry. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors uh, are few. So Jesus has them pray as he goes. Pray that the Lord might send out workers into the harvest. And Luke's audience that would have read this, they would have been reminded of the importance to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers so that the kingdom of God might grow. So as they read this gospel of Luke, they would have been reminded, we must pray that God would send out workers into his harvest field, that souls might be gathered, that people might come to know the truth of the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, may we pray the same. May may this be part of what shapes our prayer lives, that we would pray that God would send out workers into his harvest fields. The fields are white with harvest. The gospel is powerful and life-changing. May we always pray that salvation may reach the ends of the earth, whether we pray for it close by or abroad. Jesus gives his marching orders to these disciples in verses 3 through 12. He says, I'm going to send you out as lambs amongst wolves. He doesn't just say sheep. He says something that's even more fragile, delicate. Uh, Little lambs. I'm sending you out like lambs amidst wolves. The idea of evil men being like wolves was was in some ways common in in that day and age as a way to talk. I found this in the ancient literature. It says this, the wolf is a rapacious animal, deceitful, bold, violent, And men of this type are crafty, impious, bloodthirsty, quick to anger, vicious to the extent that they refuse what is given or offered them, but steal what is not given. Jesus says, I'm sending you out into crowds of these kinds of people. Doesn't sound too pleasant, does it? One would think that this calls for holy war. If you're going to go out and that's the kind of person that you're going to see, Jesus should send out his people decked out in armor and arrayed with all kinds of weapons. But just as faithful David refused the armor of King Saul, we're reminded that victory and the battle belong to the Lord. So rather than equipping those whom he sends out, Jesus de-equips them, doesn't he? He de-equips them. No wallet, no suitcase, no sandals. Some commentators think that Jesus sent them out barefoot. Other people think that he just said you can't bring an extra pair of shoes, but either way you would see how that would be quite a challenge, right? When your shoes begin to wear out, you're going from town to town, you have nothing extra, or if you are sent out barefoot, you have to walk gingerly, slowly. It's the antithesis of power. Nothing powerful about what is going on uh, with, with everything here that Jesus says to his disciples. They are to be empty-handed. They are to be rude to those whom they encounter. And the, the rudeness, Jesus saying, do not greet anyone along the way, that reminds us of the urgency 
of the mission of Jesus. Remember, he has set his face to Jerusalem. And remember in chapter 9 when he said, if anyone is going to come after me, he cannot take the time to go and bury his family members who die. He cannot take the time to say goodbye to his family. So it's very specific to this time, this specific time when Jesus sets his face to the cross. He says, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a part of my mission now at this time, you must mirror the urgency that I have shown. For I have rejected all of that. I have forgotten about caring for my family so that I might set my face to Jerusalem and go to the cross. So this shows us that what Luke is saying here doesn't really apply to the church age after Jesus uh, is resurrected and ascends on high. In fact, in chapter 22, Jesus will rescind a lot of these commandments. It's not the way that we send out missionaries now. People say they want to go on the mission field and we say, okay, uh, no wallet, no suitcase, no shoes. No, this was specific for this day and age. But it gives us a glimpse of the mission because it shows us that the power of God is displayed in weakness. The principle still stands, doesn't it? The power of God is displayed in weakness. And they give a powerful pronouncement. Uh, they, they, they pronounce peace. Now the idea of peace is something that the, the Romans would see what is so controversial about what is being said here. We think of Jesus, especially in the time that we are now entering in the season or in the, in the year of Jesus as the Prince of Peace. When we hear that, we automatically think of Jesus now, which is wonderful. But back then, the Prince of Peace, the self-proclaimed Prince of Peace, was Caesar because he was mighty enough, uh, he was strong enough in his military power to grant peace and to take it away. So he wanted to tell the world that peace came from his hand. He was the Prince of peace. But the peace that the disciples give and the disciples declare is even deeper. It's more ultimate. It's transcendent above that peace. So they will say, peace be upon you, peace be upon this house. And if it's met with someone who believes their message, then their peace will rest upon them. It's central to the mission of the church. It's central to the proclamation of the gospel. When we assemble every Sunday, we assemble under what declaration? Grace to you and peace. This is how uh, the Apostle Paul greeted all of the New Testament churches. Grace to you and peace. Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God for those who believe in Jesus Christ, who have been justified by faith. When Christ was born, what did the angels say? Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace upon those with whom his favor rests. Ephesians chapter 2 says that Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far off and those who were near. It's an ultimate, transcendent peace. But again, their power is not on display. It's a, it's a mysterious power. They're dependent on what others give them. Notice that Jesus says, eat what is set before you and do not go from house to house. Why does he say that? Because back then, it would be common that teachers, philosophers would travel from town to town. And oftentimes what they would do is when they got to a city, they would try and find the best host. You didn't want to go to the, to the home that's going to give you cold cuts or tofu, peanut butter and jelly. They want to go to the house that gives you steak and shrimp. Right? Where, where can I find that house? So oftentimes there would be movement from one house to another 
who is the most powerful person that is willing to take me in because that shows that my message is being received. That shows that my power is growing. Jesus says that's not how you are to operate or to act. Do not go from house to house. Eat what is set before you because if the disciples of Jesus were to do that, then their actions would be contradicting their message. They're proclaiming a peace that is ultimate, that is transcendent beyond all others. But if they spend their time trying to indulge themselves in worldly pleasures, trying to find the best kinds of worldly comforts, then they're contradicting their message, aren't they? So Jesus says, do not spend your time doing that. Have your necessities met and then no more. They are dependent upon the generosity of others. It's also fascinating that this shows us, even though Jesus sends them out in the, uh, as lambs in the midst of wolves, they will find allies. They will find those who will join hands with them. And this is really the mystery of the church throughout all of the ages, isn't, isn't it? That the church is a contrast people set in the midst of the world. It is to live a different kind of life. It is to show a different kind of love. They, they are to rally together. And to share generosity and to share of resources and to love and to forgive. They are a contrast people in the midst of the nations. The kingdom of God set in the midst of the world. Set in the midst of a present and an evil age. Living by a different law. Living by different principles. Living according to a different history. The people of God live according to God's version of history. That he reigns. That Christ has come. And that Christ is coming again. And so ultimately, they are to give these proclamations of the kingdom of God, as we see in verses 8 through 12. If their message is received, the kingdom of God has come near you, is what they are to say. If a town rejects them, what what are they to say? The kingdom of God is near. There's a very slight difference, but it communicates something so important. They are to give this blessing of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come upon you when their message is received. When their message is rejected, the kingdom of God has come near. In other words, the kingdom of God passed you by. The kingdom of God came oh so close, but it has passed you by. See, they're going before Jesus, aren't they? They're paving the way for him. So when that message was received, we can assume that Jesus would enter that town and he would bring his healing and his saving presence. But if their message is rejected, they shake the dust off their feet and Jesus would not enter that town. The kingdom of God came oh so close, but it passed you by. And that's why Jesus utters these woes. And he says that it's going to be worse for these towns, for these villages, who heard the good news of the kingdom and rejected it, than it will be for these proverbial wicked cities that we remember from the Old Testament. Really, no wickedness was equaled to what we read about in Genesis chapters 19 and 20. And and all of the things that are going on there. And, And it's hard for us even to comprehend when we read those stories in Genesis But Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, these places will be better off than for those who hear the good news of the kingdom. It passes them by. came oh so close. Jesus utters these woes. And it shows that there's this duality to the kingdom of God, isn't there? Blessing and judgment. And that is really what we are proclaiming, what the church proclaims when we say that the king is coming and that the king 
has come. That truth stands transcendent above the whole world. Christ has come. He is coming again. We are making uh, the way ready for him. And so we, we proclaim that good news and say to all who accept that message, of course their eyes are opened by the power of God, but to all who see Jesus Christ as Lord of all, uh, their lives will be changed. They will receive the blessing of the kingdom of God and not uh, the judgment of the kingdom of God. And so from all of these things, what do we see? We see the power of salvation through weakness. Jesus sends out his lambs in the midst of wolves. No wallets, no suitcase, perhaps no shoes or well-worn shoes. They were the antithesis of worldly power. But what do we see? We see that Jesus was the ultimate lamb sent out in the midst of wolves. The cross shows us that the ultimate power of God, the greatest power of God, or the greatest power that can be experienced in this life, comes through a symbol of weakness, through the cross. It shows us about the ongoing mission of the church. The church is to be a mission-minded people. That it happens through the generosity and the sharing of the people of God. One of the great mysteries that the world has been changed. So many things have happened because the church has continued to be mission-minded. But not everyone is sent out like how Jesus publicly commissions these 70 or 72, are they? No. Not everyone is sent out to proclaim. So how does everyone enter the mission of the church? We enter the mission of the church by being that contrast people in the midst of the nations. By thinking long and hard about our true the practical holiness, the way that we live our lives, the way that it testifies to what God has done in our hearts. The church is to be a mission-minded people set in the midst of the nations as a light to the world, as a testament to the glory of God and the grace of God as it's seen in Jesus Christ. The audiences that would have read the Gospel of Luke for the first time would have been reminded of all of these things. Yes, these are not rules for missionaries going forward to send them out without a wallet without a suitcase but it reminds us that power is seen in weakness jesus the ultimate lamb in the midst of wolves the ongoing mission of the church that the church is not to be driven by seeking after worldly things god attends to our necessities and god blesses many in abundance and we should be thankful for that but the message we receive and the message that we proclaim is ultimate peace. And all of us can enter that mission of the church by being a light to the nations, by entering into what God calls us to, practical holiness, seeking what he would have for us in our lives as we glorify him and one day we'll enjoy him forever. The king has come and the king is coming. When we proclaim the gospel, that's what we are doing. We are still preparing the way for him to return. We say to a, to a world that is lost in its sin, that is in danger of condemnation, we say to the world that the king is coming. You can be made ready for him while there's still time. That's the good news. The king is coming again. So may we remember that today, that our king is coming, that our king has come we're saved in him, and may we live like we know that that telling of history is true. That Jesus Christ has come and is coming again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for 
all that you do in our lives and for the many ways in which you remind us of your goodness. May you apply these scriptures to us. May we think about them and and may they shape who we are and, and how we live. We thank you for your word. May we hide it and treasure it in our hearts. Father, may you empower us as you cause the light of your grace to shine upon us, that you might uh, empower us to be lights in a dark place. We give you thanks and praise for all that you do in Christ's name. Amen.